0: This is the hardest podcast episode that I've had to record to date. Since starting this podcast back in 2019, many of you have asked for an episode on grief. But just like my episodes on trauma that took years because I dug my heels in because the words I was telling myself sounded like, how can you talk about grief when you haven't experienced it? Unfortunately, I'm now part of this illustrious club that no one wants to be part of. My beautiful mama passed away suddenly. So I'm going to talk about grief and how those of us with ADHD may handle it differently. Thomas Edison, Richard Branson, John F. Kennedy, Mozart, Michael Jordan, Will Smith, That sounds like a list of highly successful titans in a variety of vocations. Why is it that we rarely hear that they have or had ADHD? And you know what we hear even less about? Serena Williams, Emma Watson, Mel Robbins, Whoopi Goldberg, Agatha Christie, Aaron Brockovich, Cher. The successful women navigating ADHD. And that's exactly why I started this podcast, ADHD for Smart Ass Women. I'm your host, Tracy Otsuka. I'm a lawyer, not a doctor, a lifelong student, now a coach. I'm also the creator of Your ADHD Brain is A OK, a system that helps people like you figure out what they should do with their life. And we're here today to talk ADHD your strengths, your symptoms, your workarounds, and how you proudly stand out instead of trying to fit in. I credit my ADHD for some of my greatest gifts. And you know what? I spy a happier life for you too. So without further ado, a shiny new episode is starting now. Hello, I'm Tracy Otsuka. Welcome to episode number 249 of ADHD for Smartass Women. I hope you'll subscribe to this podcast and our newsletter over at tracyoutsuka.com. My purpose is always to show you who you are and then inspire you to be it. And in the thousands of ADHD women that I've had the privilege of meeting, I've never met a one that wasn't truly brilliant at something. Not one. And that, my friend, includes you. This is the hardest podcast episode that I've had to record to date. In truth, I've been procrastinating everything and avoiding it like the plague. Which means that maybe I didn't have to go there, right? But I knew I had to do this for my mother. So since starting this podcast back in 2019, many of you have asked for an episode on grief. Grief. But just like my episodes on trauma that took years because I dug my heels in because the words I was telling myself sounded like, how can you talk about grief when you haven't experienced it? Unfortunately, I'm now part of this illustrious club that no one wants to be part of. So I'm going to talk about grief and how those of us with ADHD may handle it differently. But first, I hope it's okay that I share my story. My beautiful mama passed away suddenly, in July. My nephew and then my dad contracted COVID. They had fairly minor symptoms and they recovered quickly, but then my mom got it. And she had told me that she felt good and that she loved me on Wednesday morning. In the afternoon when I checked in with her, she started to complain of migraines, which got progressively worse by evening. The thing is, my mom often suffered from migraines, so it didn't seem that out of the ordinary. When I checked in with her on Thursday, I didn't hear back, but I was running around and I didn't even really notice how much time had passed. I had a day of meetings, a dentist appointment. I had just delivered my final copy-edited book the Tuesday before so I had so much in the work queue to catch up on. And my daughter's friend, Molly, was flying in that evening to visit. It was a busy day. So nighttime arrived, and we were all sitting around our island eating dinner when I got the call. You know, the one that you never want to get, the one that forever changes your life. And it was from my dad. My dad, by the way, never calls. My mom did all the communications in our family. So I panicked because I just knew that if he was calling me and not my mom, there was something seriously wrong. My dad said, Tracy, mom had a stroke, and she's being airlifted to a stroke center at Mills Peninsula Hospital to operate. He promised to call us back once he heard from the operating physician. At that point, we would then figure out what to do next. So Mills was two hours from our home and my parents' home in Sonoma County. It also happened to be in the city of Burlingame, which is where my parents bought their first home, and I spent most of my childhood. As a child, we had driven by Mills Peninsula Hospital several times a day. My mom loved Burlingame and Hillsborough, which is where we lived from the time I was 12. Not so much Sonoma County, which is where my parents retired to. An hour later, my dad called back to say that once they had airlifted her to Mills Peninsula, They did another brain scan, and they determined that the risk in operating was too great, so now all they could do was just wait and see. My mom was in a coma, and the doctors would meet with us in the morning. That next morning, we met with her doctor on the floor of the ICU. He told us that she had a large right side of the brain stroke, and they weren't able to operate because although the brain scans looked good before they airlifted her, By the time they got her to the stroke hospital, it was too risky to try and remove the clot. We were told that all we could do was wait and see if she might regain consciousness. They didn't sound too optimistic. So my mom was in the COVID section with all the COVID protocols. Her doctor asked me if her general doctor knew she had COVID and did that doctor prescribe anything if she knew. I said the doctor knew, but she hadn't prescribed anything. I knew this because my sister had had a discussion with my mom about this. He shook his head and he muttered something to indicate that he disapproved of how her primary care doctor had handled this. That's when he mentioned that strokes are very common among those with COVID. I've since seen studies that there can be up to a 25 times higher likelihood of stroke if you have high blood pressure and you get COVID. Of course, we didn't know any of this. I mean, my mom looked at least 10 years younger than her chronological age. She had just visited her family in Germany for four weeks a few months before, and she was getting ready to go to Japan with my dad. She wasn't sick, she was very active, and she seemed in great health to us. She did, however, have high blood pressure, and she took medication for it. Going into her hospital room was awful. It was like a bad dream. I felt like I was living all those news stories where families are surrounding a loved one in the COVID unit. Two of us could go in at a time, and we were outfitted head to toe in what they call an isolation uniform, which consisted of a gown. It was yellow. An N95 mask, plastic shields, and gloves. Now, as compared to other COVID patients and families, At the start and even the middle of the pandemic, we were actually really lucky because we could be there. Every day for the next 10 days, I was there with my kids. Well, it took Marcus a few days to get home from New York. But I was there with my kids, my husband, and my extended family. The prognosis got progressively more depressing since my mother never regained consciousness. Finally, the medical staff scheduled what I'll call the the pull-the-plug meeting with all the doctors, which was scheduled after a final MRI. All the family was present at this meeting, and my dad made the decision to take her off of life support. You know, his father had walked into a plate glass wall in his 50s, never regained consciousness, so that would have been my grandfather, right? And he was in a coma for six or more years. So my dad, with advice from the doctors, didn't see that, there was really any option. And in truth, he was probably right. But it was hard. The whole process was so overwhelmingly frustrating. You know, I think that there was something positive only to be shut down once it happened. It was almost like the goal peck. the goalpost kept moving, right? The doctors would tell us her life's left side was paralyzed and she needed to start moving it to show she was recovering or she was improving. And when she started moving it, well, that wasn't enough. Then she started, you know, she had to do more. So then she started lifting her left leg and her left arm. And I remember being so happy. But then, nope, that too, it was just not enough. Regardless, she was removed from life support with everyone around her on Friday afternoon. This was nine days later. From what the medical staff said, we thought she'd live, I don't know, maybe another hour or so. We were all playing her favorite songs and singing by her bed. But of course, what the universe and these doctors didn't know was that my mother was about as stubborn as they come. My daughter, who I dubbed my emotional support daughter, I could have never done this without her. She stayed awake by her bedside all night with me. The next morning, my mom was still going strong. You know, we paid rapt attention to her vitals and the horrible term that the nurses called the death rattle, which is this rattling sound that someone who's dying makes when they're trying to breathe. I had never heard this term before. And I'll say it's the most horrible term I've ever heard. And I beg you, if you are a medical professional, to please find a different word. Like I was fine with my mom's labored breathing until a nurse used that term. And you know our ruminating brains, right? I literally felt like I was in this awful William Faulkner novel, like as I lay dying, right? with death buzzards circling around the room. Late that following afternoon, it was now Saturday, we were moved to what they called a comfort room, which was anything but. I think it was much more stressful than the ICU room. You know, they take all the machines and staff out that give you vitals. So you have no idea. We had no idea how my mom was doing. Before, I had paid rapt attention to every sound she made, right? Certain that this was the one. And I could pay attention to the the equipment. I could see what her vitals looked like. But after 24 hours of this, I knew my mom. And I figured she was just going to play a trick on us and not leave us for, who knows, a couple of weeks, maybe a month? I didn't know. I remember looking at my daughter, Atea, who was reading on the window seat and my son was on his phone. My brothers and nieces decided to go grab some food to bring back because in all of our minds, this was going to take a while. I was sitting right next to my mom's bedside, and for the first time in 10 days, I pulled out my phone, and I opened up Twitter. I was scrolling, I swear to you, for no more than two to three minutes, and all of a sudden, my son in a panicked voice says, Mom, Oma's not breathing. Oma is grandmother in German. I couldn't believe it. I'm thinking, are you kidding me? I missed my mom's last breath because of friggin' Twitter? I was completely besides myself. Literally, your mom is dying, and you can't even focus then. I was never going to be able to forgive myself for this. The silence, that deafening silence, lasted for at least 30 seconds while I sat there not breathing myself, begging that God, the universe, anyone would make sure that I would be right here with her when she took her last breath. And then, she took the biggest breath I've ever heard. Just one. I held her hand, and she passed away. It was the best gift I could have ever received. My mom passed away on Saturday at 5.17 p.m. Late that evening after we left the hospital, we had dinner at a restaurant and sat outside. It was the calmest, most peaceful, balmy evening I've ever experienced. The sky was the brightest blue I'd ever seen and there were stars everywhere. We all had a cocktail for my mom. She loved cocktails. When we toasted her out of the corner of my eye, a shooting star fell. Every Saturday since, I get a message on my Apple Watch at 5.17 p.m. that says, Mom, it was the honor of my lifetime to help her make her transition. I was blessed beyond measure to have her as my mom. Right after my mom passed, I asked my wonderful assistant, Leiden, to pull some podcast reviews for me. I was working on a project. The last review that she pulled was from a young woman named Chelsea Kay. These were Apple podcast reviews, I believe. I want to read it to you because it made all the difference in the world to me. It was captioned, she's the ADHD role model I've needed in my life. After listening to a few other podcasts focused around ADHD, I stumbled across Tracy's podcast. To give some background, my mom passed away four years ago. If it isn't hard enough to have ADHD as a young woman, it was nearly unlivable without the one person in the world who understood me and my intentions. Since then, so for four years now, I've been lost in this fog of feeling like what's wrong with me. I thought much of it was just the trauma of losing my mom. After learning a lot about ADHD, I had begun to understand that what I was experiencing was my diagnoses and not a character flaw. I just no longer had the support that I had when my mom was alive. That being said, I truly didn't know what to do with that as I had no one in my life to support me as I am, without discouraging the parts of me that weren't so typical. Having Tracy through this podcast has given me back the confidence in myself by opening me to this powerful community of successful ADHD women. I can't even begin to find the words to just how much I needed this in my life. This content is absolutely everything. Well, Chelsea, now it's your turn to be absolutely everything. After all, This is the only major loss that I have ever had in my entire life, which is pretty damn incredible. I have a daughter who just turned 25 and a son who's 21. My mom also had me when she was very young, which it makes me feel selfish for wishing for more, especially when I read Chelsea's story and I have friends who lost a parent as a child. Still, I guess we just assume. Our moms will live forever, don't we? I'm grateful for you, Chelsea, for coming full circle and comforting me by reminding me of how blessed I am to have had my mom as long as I did. I also have a wonderful, supportive husband and two kids that were everything I needed. I can't imagine how difficult it must have been for a young woman like you to do this by yourself. You're amazing. And if you're out there, and you're hearing this, write me. So this is my story, but this podcast is about grief, right? And how we might process it differently than a neurotypical might. The strange thing is, I don't know if it's my reticular activating system. You know, once you're looking for something like, I don't know, you're going to buy a red Kia and all of a sudden you start seeing red Kias everywhere. But I don't think so. Several women that I know lost their moms right around the same time that I lost mine. And I'm hoping to get them together for a podcast in the not-too-distant future because I think we could all learn a lot from them, myself included. One of them is a very good friend of mine, and although I absolutely would have gone it alone if the choice was that her mother would still be here. But if it had to happen to both of us, I feel blessed that she was going through this. almost the exact time when I was. What I also realized is, like anything that you haven't experienced, you just don't get it until you experience it. This is why I worry about talking about anything that I don't have firsthand knowledge of. You know, I've had many people tell me that they've lost a parent, and of course I've said the obligatory, oh, I am so sorry. But in truth, I realize now I didn't really get it. And so when people say that to me now, I'm thinking, you've never experienced this. You don't really get it. You know, my own husband lost his dad within nine months of us getting married, and then his mom seven or so years later. I don't even remember how I responded. But I know now I wish I would have done more. So let's start talking about what these differences and how we might process grief could be. Now. Remember, we're all different, so our experiences will likely be different, but given the brain we share, I suspect that you might be able to relate to quite a bit of what I'm going to say. Okay, here's the first one. Those of us with ADHD may have a different perception of time. We know we have time perception challenges, right? But this might affect how we experience the grieving process. We might feel that time is passing too slowly or too quickly, or like in my case, we may have no perception of time at all. You know, I've heard others who've lost a loved one say this too, but everything in my life is now marked by before my mom had her stroke and after she had her stroke. From the products in my makeup bag to the expiration date on food in the refrigerator to clothes in my closet to photos on my phone. Everything I look at, I now look at through the lens of when my mom was here versus when she wasn't. I have to constantly get rid of messages on my phone so that my mom stays at the top of my DMs. Yesterday, I opened an email and I realized that threads started when my mom was healthy and here. I'm constantly looking at dates and just wishing and bargaining about if I could just go back to that earlier date. If I could have just known, if I could have just run over to my mom's house and checked on her. I'm doing less of that, but it's still there. The time that has passed, it's almost like it means nothing. It's almost like it stood still. And that any moment, my mom's going to walk through the door and she's going to tell me, oh my gosh, this was all just a big joke. I know intellectually what happened, but it still doesn't feel real. I have photos of my mom everywhere, and I bought this beautiful knitted mommy rabbit, and she has a little baby rabbit in her pouch in her front pocket, and I bought one for my daughter also, and without fail, I think of my mom every morning when I wake up and every night when I go to bed, and I go hug my mommy rabbit. Look, if you have someone who needs a beautiful hand-knit doll I can't rave enough about the quality and the mission of Cuddle and Kind. I don't get anything for telling you this. I'm just so impressed with the quality of what it is they do. And they also donate 10 meals to a child with the purchase of every doll. I have bought several of these and a few times during the year, they'll offer 25% off, but I've never bought one for myself. And it's weirdly comforting. She's big. She's like 20 inches tall and she's super soft and cuddly. And I love her. I know I'm far too old for this, but it gives me comfort. How else might those of us with ADHD handle grief differently? Well, we probably won't do things like everyone else, right? We may want more options. We may be more tenacious. We may be more optimistic. And like me, you may be a bull in a china shop. We do things differently, right? We challenge the status quo. We're optimists. I couldn't take what the nurses, doctors, and even my family was saying. Everyone had given up. I'm sure they would say they were being realistic. But I just have this belief that where there's a will, there's always a way. It's just who I am, and it means I can't live with myself if I don't at least try. So the first thing I did was research. I wanted to know what helps people get out of a coma. They had my mom basically lying in the dark with crappy music, like elevator music, that she would hate. As they walked around her speaking in these hushed tones, it made no sense to me. So I found a Korean study on comatose stroke patients and multisensory stimulation. It was a small study, but most of the studies are small, right? Right. And what it found was that multimodal sensory stimulation played an essential role in the recovery of unconscious stroke patients. And this made sense to me. Get their brains to hear music they love. Get their brains to hear loved ones' voices, right? Get them to smell things they know, like their favorite perfume, and taste things like lemon juice on cotton balls. Finally, touch them by rubbing their shoulders and their hands as you talk to them. And you do all this five times a day because what you're doing is you're helping them to engage all their senses. This study also found that this early sensory treatment provided by families, but it has to be done, you know, at the beginning of a stroke, that these sensory treatments provided by families are more successful than if the nursing staff does them. And that makes sense to me too. So you can imagine some of the nurses hated me. My mom loved opera, so we blared opera and all her favorite songs, mostly from Doris Day and Joni James. I put lavender essential oils on her pillow. She loved lavender since she was a child, and several studies also show that lavender helps with anxiety, insomnia, stress, and even pain. We talked to her and showed her photos while reminding her about what happened in those photos, when were those photos taken, Who was there? I turned the lights on. We spoke in a normal tone. Most of the nursing staff was incredible. These people were saints and so loving and kind. But there were two nurses who really should have been in a different line of work, like maybe prison guards. They walked in one day. Actually, it was the first day that I met them. They didn't acknowledge my mom at all, didn't say hello to us, just turned their backs and started typing into this computer. And then they pushed us away from the bed while they checked on my mom. And there was no communication. They didn't say anything. They just pushed us away so that they could get their job done. But the worst thing was how rough they were with my mom compared to any of the other nurses. I said, hello, this is Tracy, and this is my mom, and you're causing her pain being so rough. And one of them looked up and kept working, not acknowledging anything that I was saying. And I thought, well, maybe she's just having a bad day. But I made a note to myself that I was going to be in the room whenever she was there. The next time my sister was in my mom's room and I wasn't there, she pulled my sister aside and said, your sister is not handling this well, and gave her advice on what I should be doing. Clearly, I should have been quietly crying on the side of the bed, or maybe I should have just not been there so that she could get her job done. Laughter and positive emotion had no business being in an ICU room, according to her. And opera music, lavender essential oils, overseas calls from my mom's brother to her really didn't. I had asked my uncle to call and talk to her, even though she was unconscious, hoping his voice might trigger something in her brain. When I ratted her out to the charge nurse, I didn't even have to say this nurse's name. Kim was her name, by the way. She said the name for me and was kind as could be and shared that I wasn't the only one who had problems with Kim. Look, I'm an ask for forgiveness, not permission kind of person. But because of this horrible response from Kim, I decided to get my mom's doctors to buy off on this multimodal stimulation. So I copied the study and gave it to them. They agreed, and they both asked to keep the study so that they could do more research. And I guess it wasn't such a ridiculous idea after all, right? I also brought in dozens of photos and made a giant collage that I stuck to the wall so that everyone in that room could see who they were taking care of. The woman that was lying in that bed was not my mother, and I wanted them to know who she was. Every single person that came into that hospital room, I directed to those photos first. My mom, she was proud, she was strong, she was smart, elegant, and silly, bubbly, and beautiful. I wanted everyone to see who she really was. Several nurses commented to me on what a difference that made to them. My mom, she was a wife and grandmother and daughter and sister and mother-in-law, sister-in-law, daughter-in-law, and she was my mother. And I wanted them to see her in all of those roles. I was always so proud to introduce her to anyone. So why would it be any different now? So how else might those of us with ADHD handle grief differently? Well, we discovered that we're really good in a crisis. We take over and we lead. I think my family might have also thought I was just a little nuts. But again, we're crisis warriors, right? I was at that hospital every day, and it was a two-hour commute each way. I coordinated with the hospital staff and my family because I was there most of the time, and so everyone came to me. I checked on my family who was struggling. I communicated with my mom's brothers in Europe. I planned the church service, ordered the flowers for the church, ordered the harp for the church, planned the reception at my home, picked up the ashes, bought the flowers for the reception at the flower mart, and then put them all together. I created the menu for the reception. I had a good sense not to cater this, I ordered the string trio, which I know my mom would have loved, for our home. I was the point person for all the photos for a slideshow of my mom's life. I bought clothing and shoes for family members. I picked my mom's brother up from the airport. I hosted him for 10 days, which was a gift. And I left for New York with Atea the day after we dropped off my uncle. And I kept a major book deadline during this period. My point in telling you all of this is just that I feel like I went into extreme ADHD hyperfocus, which might also be another reason that we handle grief differently. I also wanted to control everything because I knew that I would do all of this as well as anyone. And I also knew that it was the last thing that I would ever be able to do for my mom. I knew how much she appreciated when things were beautiful and there was a real attention paid to detail. No one else in my family really gets that or cares about it. It was our thing. That was my hyper-focus, and if I had to do it all by myself and be the warden to make sure this happened, so be it. As her daughter, I was going to fight for this. Busyness is probably also my own way of coping, right? I need to stay very, very busy. But I also suspect that maybe this is avoidant behavior, although I do feel like I've been processing this in a healthy way. I've been in action in the task positive network, the TPN, not in the default mode network, the DMN, where brooding and rumination happens. Remember, we have these two networks in our brain, right? And when we're in action, our TPN is firing and we feel good. When we're not in action, we're ruminating and brooding and upset and possibly hyperfocusing on bad stuff because our DMN is firing. And so the deal is, if you can get out of all that negative emotion by getting into action, by doing something, by working out, gardening, calling a friend, planning a service, picking up ashes, hosting a relative, arranging flowers... Maybe you can stay out of the D-M-N. I also, like many of you, frankly, I just thrive in chaos. Another area where we may experience grief differently is social challenges. Social interactions may be more of a struggle for those of us with ADHD. People with ADHD, we might struggle with the expectations and norms associated with these kinds of situations. For example, those nurses had an expectation of how I should act, and that included no opera and no laughing, right? My family probably wasn't a huge fan of my optimism and unwillingness to just listen to the doctors, Tracy, right? I mean, and they had their own right to handle their grief the way that worked for them. And they were actually fantastic. I also didn't wear black to my mom's service. Instead, I wore a coral pink, which was one of my mom's favorite colors. And so now I'm going to tell you something that I originally cut from this podcast because it's going to be long. And this is weird. But last minute, I decided if I can't tell you all, who can I tell? So I'm going to include it. I think this is what my family really does think is weird. And I'm talking about my extended family, not so much my immediate family. So my mom was cremated, and so I asked my dad for ashes because I had read that you can make a diamond out of loved one's ashes, and I wanted something that I could wear that would always be with me like a ring or a pendant. What are the chances, by the way, that the person who invented that technology had ADHD? Probably pretty high, right? The problem is it takes a year to make a diamond, and I wanted my mom with me now. So I figured until then... I had these two tiny little empty Nordstrom containers. Yeah, you guessed it. You know, the kind that they give away with samples of creams and moisturizer. And yeah, I have some of my mom's ashes in each one of them. And I cart them around with me everywhere. In the last two months, my mom has spent five weeks in New York City. She's been to Austin. She's been to Bend, Oregon. When I left New York City, I left one of the two little Nordstrom containers. I mean, they're really, really tiny with my daughter. So my mom is now going to law school every day, which frankly, I just get a chuckle out of it. And I asked my daughter, you're taking that into law school? Are you putting it on, you know, the big desk? And she said, no, mom, I've got them in the little pencil case, but that sits on my desk. And I asked her, have you told anyone? And she's like, no, this is too weird. So when we got to New York City, I think I had mentioned I've mentioned in in other podcasts that, you know, we were so late and we had to find my daughter a place to live in the Upper West Side because she was starting law school. And we got to New York City and my daughter and I ordered a cocktail and we ordered one for my mom, too. I think it was the day we arrived and we placed the little Nordstrom container in the middle of the table so she could, you know, have dinner with us. And as we finished our meal, the server came to clean the table. He picked up the ashes and Tay and I both went uh, and then he looked at the ashes and then he did his own uh, and then he apologized profusely, dropped it quickly back on the table. And as he walked away, my daughter looks at me, Taya, right? And she says, Mom, I think he thought it was cocaine. <laughs> it looks pretty white. So if this isn't a socially unacceptable ADHD story, you tell me what is. Okay, how else might we experience grief differently with ADHD? We may struggle more when grief disrupts our daily routine and structure. Now, my fear was more about everything going back to normal, right? And, oh my gosh, there's nothing to do. There's nothing to occupy me. I'm not running around like a chicken without a head. But for many of us, grief often disrupts daily routines. And individuals with ADHD may find this really hard to cope with, right? These disruptions. It'll lead to increased stress. For me, though, I wanted nothing to do with routine and structure because I knew that that would give me more time to think. And so I'd be more in my DMN than in my TPN, right? Again, I think a therapist might call this avoidant behavior. I'm not quite sure yet. We also know that we don't have more emotion than a neurotypical does. We just feel more emotion. And this means that our emotions can be more intense and fluctuating, which can lead to heightened emotional reactions during the grieving process. We can hyperfocus, right, and ruminate on these very negative emotions. Those within a tent of ADHD who are more in their head might be more likely to experience this versus very hyperactive women like me may struggle more with this next one. Because we're just moving and, you know, we're just not in it at all, right? And that one is difficulty in expressing emotions. So what does that mean? That means talking about what's going on. That means actually showing emotion. That means seeking support from others. So my friend Lori, she's been on this podcast twice. She has a program that I will link to that I cannot remember the name, um, e-diagnostic learning in Texas. And she basically tests kids. And women for ADHD and other learning challenges. I shouldn't say and other learning challenges. I should say and learning challenges because ADHD is not considered a learning challenge. Anyway, she lost her mom shortly after I did. And what she said to me is, I am go, go, go. It is how I've always been. I also thrive in chaos. Everyone keeps saying it's going to sink in and I'm going to have a good cry when it's all over. But honestly, I'm not sure I will. It's like my brain can't stay on the idea long enough to get really, really sad. Some of us may find it challenging to maintain focus on the grieving processes, which would explain our scattered thoughts, our inability to focus and the go, go, go. Right. I can so relate to Lori's comment. And I think for me, again, it's less that my brain can't stay on the idea. Then I won't let my brain have enough time to even go there. Avoidant. Like my mom, believe it or not, even though I have this podcast that's aired all over the world, in times like this, I am very, very private. The day after my mom had a stroke, one of my brothers posted on Facebook. I still haven't posted anywhere, although I'm I'm gonna have to once this podcast goes live, right? So if my friends found out that my mom was sick or had passed away, it was because they saw his post. It wasn't from me, other than a very few select group of friends, who I talk to every day in texts, and so those women knew. Just like Lori, I keep waiting for that literal fall-apart cry that I was certain would have happened by now, but I don't think it's going to happen either. I was too busy holding myself together so I could be the strong one for those around me, and once the worst part was all over, any chance of falling apart was over too. My mom was a lot like me, right? Certainly a lot more like me than, say, my siblings. Actually, my older brother, he's good in chaos, too. My mom was amazing in crisis. And so I knew she would be most worried about my dad and my siblings. And so I guess my thought was, do it for her. It's what she would have wanted. You know, be the strong one that supports them. The downside, though, is when you're emotionally so strong and you're so focused on checking in and making sure that everyone else is okay, people think, oh, she's a superwoman. She's so strong. How does she do that? And what that means is no one ever asks you how you're doing. And in truth, if they did, I'd likely just change the subject anyway. Right. And I think that's so often how we cope. Like Lori, right? Go, go, go. What can I do? How can I be in action? So my task positive network is firing and then my default mode network won't be so engaged. What else? We might also struggle more with procrastination and avoidance around grief. You think so? So for whatever reason, I can't handle the sympathy and I push away and go inward, which is so weird because I'm such an outward person. I mean, my parents called me the Burlingame Blab because I told all the family secrets. Yet in this particular situation, I couldn't even talk about it. I have voicemails still in my phone from people who left me messages about my mom, and I still haven't been able to listen to them. It's almost like I can't listen because then it makes it more real, which is ridiculous because obviously it is real. But if I don't go there, if I don't have to listen to them, and I don't talk about what happened to my mom because I don't respond, then it didn't happen? Sort of? I also have some friends who I text back and forth with pretty much daily. I think I had already mentioned that. And so they knew what was going on. And I felt terrible because days would go by before I would respond when they were checking in with me. I was procrastinating something fierce with these texts. And then they'd call and I'd ignore those calls too. And they'd call because they were worried because I wasn't responding to the texts, right? But I couldn't even respond to the calls either. So in a weird way, It was comforting to have people check in, but I couldn't listen to their messages, nor could I get back to them. For my mom's reception, my son also pulled together an hour-long video with all the photos we could get together, starting from my mom as a child. He set the photos to her favorite songs, and I also promised my mom's brothers photos of the actual day and videos from those who spoke. But I still haven't sent them. Everything that could go wrong did, in my defense, and the slideshow that played well on a giant screen was too big for laptops, so it all had to be rebuilt, which means I had to find someone to do this. My son was back in school. He didn't have time, and he just thought, you know, it's going to take me so much longer than someone who knows what they're doing. It also meant that I had to personally go through all these photos and videos, and I've always struggled with going through photos and videos for other people. This may make them happy, but for me, I really hate it. I can barely look through my kids' old photos. There's so much emotion tied to, for me, tied to what happened to the time. Like, where did those babies go? And they're alive and thriving. So can you imagine how hard it would be to go through my entire childhood and see my mom, who was always there, but is no longer? The good news is, I just got the slideshow back and I've had the rest of the photos and videos sitting in my email inbox with all the links since August. So by the time this airs, the photos and slideshows will have been sent. But I'm embarrassed about how long it's taken me and how difficult it's been. I don't know what it is about photos. Yes, it's the emotion, but then it's also the whole organization around them that I just don't understand. And it's literally like, some of the hardest things I could possibly do, stuff around photos and videos. So these are just some general observations on how those of us with ADHD might experience grief differently. My good friend, the psychologist and procrastination coach, Dr. Christine Lee, told me something that really resonated with me. What she said is that with grief, you can't talk about it enough. Talking about it really helps to process it. So if you're struggling with grief, find a good clinician. You know, even delivering this podcast, I was worried. I I wasn't sure that I could do it. I thought, oh my gosh, you're just going to be breaking up throughout the whole podcast. But it's almost the more I talk about it, the easier it gets. And the more actual positive emotion comes from it rather than that stabbing negative emotion. I think she's right. So what have I learned since my mother's passing? What I know that kept me sane and able to regulate my nervous system like nothing else was tapping. I tapped in the hospital. I tapped on the drive in to see my mom. I tapped in on the drive out from the hospital. I tapped at night when I went to bed and I tapped first thing in the morning so I could get myself out of bed. It was probably the single most important self-regulating tool that I have ever used in my life. And I knew it was good, but I didn't know it was this good. So if you don't know what tapping is, I have a podcast on it that I'll link in the show notes. I think it's episode number 123. And all the stuff we've been talking about for the last, I don't know, four plus years, it really works. The mindfulness. And then the somatic step, the breathing, the hydration, and of course, the tapping. If you've never tried it, you owe it to yourself to do so. You know, the beauty of losing someone really important to you, I learned, is that you literally become fearless. I never thought that that would be a byproduct. You have no idea how much I hate hospitals, how squeamish I am about medical stuff, blood, you name it. But somehow I did it, and I was so surprised by my strength, so proud of the way I handled all of this for my mom. In truth, it's the proudest I've ever been of anything I've ever done. And I credit my ADHD for showing up in full blooming color and leading the way. That's why I could do it. I was interviewing Alice Gendron yesterday. She has a popular Instagram account and now book called The Mini ADHD Coach. Her advice is all done in doodles. And she mentioned to me that she also lost her mom and that once that happened, it was almost like she forgot about herself and how uncomfortable she was doing hard things because now she had literally done the hardest thing and she couldn't believe how well she had handled it. And she, too, had done it for her mom. And so it's almost like I have to do the hardest things for my mom now, too, because I know that that would make her proud. It's weird. It's almost like I have her by my side at all times watching over me now. She's there. I'm not alone. And so because I could do that, I can do anything. The worst part is there's no one to ask if you have a question. That knowledge, you know, it went with my mom. For example, I was looking for some piece of jewelry to wear that was linked to my mom, and I found this little gold ring with two very well-worn pearls on it. And I knew it was either a ring that my mom had bought for me when I was little, or it was a ring that was my mom's as a child, and she had given it to me. But I don't know which one was right. And so I asked my dad, and he didn't know. And I asked my sister, and she didn't know. And then I asked my uncle, thinking that maybe he saw it on my mom's hand as a teenager. But he didn't know either. So that knowing, it's gone with my mom. The stories, they're gone with my mom. And I'll never know the answer. And I struggle with that. Some other things. You know, I used to hate the fact that I was aging. And I would see myself in the mirror and kind of, you know, uh, an expression that I I would make. And I would think, oh, you look like your mom, you're aging. Because, you know, my mom was 20 years older than me. Now, today, though, I love when I look like my mom. I love when I sound like my mom. My daughter and I, you know, when I was in New York, we would be laughing about something and I'd say something and laugh and I'd stop and I'd just be so aware that I sounded just like my mother. She would have done exactly what I did. She would have sounded like I sounded. And so I see her and I hear her in me. Like, I never realized that we had the same mouth, and we had the same smile, and we had the same mannerisms, the same expressions. And I love that. What else did I learn? I learned that her voice was so important to me. It is so important to me. I wanted to hear her laugh, and I didn't have anything. I didn't have any videos that I could find that were, like, readily available. But then I found this short video that she had sent me where she was recording my dad playing with our dogs. We were somewhere, maybe we were in New York or, you know, we were overseas. And so my parents were taking care of her dogs and our dogs. And I I just love that I hear her throaty laugh as she's recording my dad playing with one of our dogs. I also do this weird thing, you know, where I've always had a voicemail of my mom, my husband, my kids on my phone. I cannot delete the last message that they sent me because I'm always worried about what if that's the last one. So I had this one voicemail from my mom, but it was just a check in for one of my nieces who forgot something. And so I was kicking myself that I hadn't saved more voicemails. So my advice is save audio clips of people you love because you're going to want to hear their voices. And it's really easy to do it. So do it now. All you have to do is just open up the voicemail and click on the, this is on, a, um, on an iPhone, but I'm sure there's a way to do it on an Android as well. You click on the little square at the top of the message with the arrow that points upward and you can save it to Dropbox or Google or re- wherever you save, you know, your audio clips, videos, whatever. And so I was so upset, right, that I didn't have more of those audio voicemails that I just had that one. And what I discovered was that if you check in your deleted message link, it doesn't matter how many years old it was. I clicked on that, and even though they were in delete, there were dozens and dozens of messages there from years ago that I could then save to Dropbox. And that just literally made my day. One more thing that I'd love to recommend is that a friend told me, about a podcast by Anderson Cooper called All There Is. And Anderson Cooper, you know, he, I don't know if he's still with CNN. I think he is. He started the podcast after he lost his mom, Gloria Vanderbilt. And so he talks about himself and his journey, but he also interviews others about their journey with grief. And I just think it's a really good podcast. I found quite a bit of comfort in it. You know, since I was in the first grade, at Benjamin Franklin Elementary School, losing my mom has been my biggest fear. And so it was especially cruel that we had to drive by my old elementary school every day on the way to the hospital. I used to worry so much that something would happen to my mom. So I'd lie to the school nurse and I'd tell her I had a really bad stomach ache. So they'd call my mom down and she'd pick me up. I remember we'd go out for lunch, and then we'd go home, and she'd make afternoon coffee, and we would do some sort of crafty thing together. And then we would watch Perry Mason or The Saint reruns. I don't know if any of you even remember The Saint. I am totally dating myself, but it was with Roger Moore, who was a Bond guy, who was a James Bond. You know, and I realize now I was the oldest of four kids, so it was rare that I got time to spend just with my mom. But I really relished those times. And, you know, I don't know that my mother had ADHD. She wasn't diagnosed, and she certainly had no interest in um, being diagnosed. But we were so similar. I was basically my mom, a younger version of my mom. And through all of this, it's really hit home just how much I am like my mom. We shared our love for crafty stuff, as I said. We both had the same emotional dysregulation meltdowns right before company came. You know, we'd plan these huge, complicated parties with recipes we'd never made before. And then, of course, we'd be totally stressed out because it was so much more fun to try the new things, right, than do something that we had done many times and knew we, you know, could ace it. My mom was silly and bubbly and the life of every party. She had so much energy and she was extremely driven. When she wanted to learn something, she learned it all the way, and she would always be the best at it. We also celebrated my brother's birthday on the wrong day for the first six years of her life, of his life, and she'd constantly lose things she's tucked away for safekeeping, including many of the early Christmas presents that she bought every year. My mom had hypersensitivities like misophonia. It literally made her nuts to hear people chew. That's what misophonia is. And she was a creature like me of specificity. She liked things a certain way, and aesthetics were really important to her. She really appreciated beauty. Originality was also so important to her. She sewed all her own clothes because she didn't want to wear anything that anyone else might have. She was one of the most creative people I know, and she was fun. Again, we were so similar, except in one area. I've always been the eternal optimist. My mom, not so much. I'm fearless and very external. My mom was more internal. She was in her head a lot. She was born in Strasbourg when it was still part of Germany. It's French now, during World War II. She was a toddler when she was taken to the shelters night after night in Berlin. I think there were 363 air raids and bombings. One day, her mom walked by a camp full of Jewish people and said, oh, these poor people, in German. And she was whisked away by the Nazis. No one knew where she was for, I think it was two weeks. My grandfather negotiated my grandmother's release, but it meant that she had to flee immediately with her kids. My grandfather was required to stay back. My grandmother had never worked, and she had three kids at the time. And my mom tells a story of somehow arriving at a farm in the middle of a countryside, and they were all starving, and this lovely farmer took them in. And so they were really poor, and they often struggled. My mom's aunt was also sterilized by Hitler due to mental health issues. My mom and her family were among the fortunate, however, unlike so many other innocent people, they lived. There were other things that happened during this time which I'm not at liberty to discuss. As I said, my mom was very private. But suffice it to say that she endured more trauma in the first few years of her life than most of us will ever know in our entire lives. And I'm astounded at her resilience. If you followed this podcast for any period of time, you know I've been writing a book. As I was writing it, I realized that I wrote it in large part for my mom so that she could understand herself better. I've always felt that I was my mom, but with all the opportunities, the privilege, the unfair advantage. And I was hoping against hope that maybe I could help her just a little bit. As I learned more and more about ADHD, I learned that she likely struggled to find the optimism because of things that happened to her in her early childhood. She struggled to find the optimism because of trauma. All I could see as her daughter was her brilliance and all that potential. And so when I discovered I had ADHD and I really delved into how trauma affects us, I tried to share it with her, but I didn't know how to do it by speaking it. Instead, I bought books on mindfulness and Tapping and Trauma. But I don't know if she ever really read any of them. Although I will say that the one on trauma was sitting by her bedside. When nothing seemed to really work, I decided to write this book. Something she could read in totality that would help her make sense of her experience. It would give us a way to talk about it, right? In other words, it wouldn't be about what was wrong with her. There was nothing wrong with her. It would be about understanding why and how what happened to her likely affected her responses and how she might view the world. And it would also be about, look, how fixable it can be. I mean, I'm an optimist, right? So I finished the book on Tuesday, and I remember thinking, I'm going to send it to my mom. My dad was a dentist, and so my parents are science medical people they're old school, right? And they couldn't really understand how any publisher in their right mind would pay me, a layperson, to write a book about a medical condition. And so the perfectionist in me thought, ah, it would have more credibility when it was released as a real book, and not just a copy-edited PDF on my computer. So I didn't send it to her. That was Tuesday. That following Thursday, my mom had her stroke. So sadly, I can't do anything for my mom any longer. That opportunity has passed. But what I can do something about are all the mothers and daughters and all the mothers and sons that but for this book might never have been given this information and a new lease on life. I can give them an opportunity to have the conversations that I never could. I can spread the word I can help them, but I need your help because it's a ripple effect. If we change one mother's life by giving her this information, allowing her to see the brilliance of her ADHD brain, then we will change her daughter's life, potentially her son's life. We might change her friend's life, maybe a teacher's life, maybe even a stranger's life, right? It depends on who she talks to. Maybe she'll go into her doctor's office with this book. And then that doctor who may not know what ADHD looks like in girls and women can turn around and share it with all of his patients. And the younger they are when this happens, that's one less child that has to grow up feeling broken and disordered. They can start their life out looking for where they're brilliant. Because we know, right, that what we focus on just gets bigger. If we're looking for the brilliance, we're going to find more brilliance. If we're looking for the brokenness, we're going to find more brokenness. But this is the deal. I need your help. We have so many more women and girls that need us. My book, ADHD for Smartass Women, with HarperCollins, William Morrow. It's now available for pre-order. Look, at this podcast, if our Facebook group, If any of my free trainings or my Your ADHD Brain is A-OK program has made a difference in your life, it would mean everything to me. If you would please go to ADHDforsmartwomen.com forward slash book and pre-order it. And yes, it's ADHDforsmartwomen.com forward slash book. Apparently, if you have ass in a URL, you'll get blocked. Few people tell you how all-consuming writing a book is and how it seeps into every part of your life. I put everything off for this book for the better part of a year, convinced that I've had plenty of time to catch up once the book was done. The whole month before my mom passed away, event after event was canceled. First because I was trying to get through my copy edits, and then again, of course, when my nephew and father contracted COVID. On that Tuesday that I turned my copy edits in, I rebooked a reservation at a restaurant that I'd promised to take my parents to. This had been a reservation that I had had to cancel twice before. On the evening my mom passed away, you know, we were walking out of the hospital with my family and I got a text and I looked down and it was a confirmation from the restaurant letting me know that they were expecting us in, I don't know, 10 minutes, 15 minutes. Don't cancel the dinner. Give her the book. Go spend time with your mom now, because I promise you that the rest can wait. My goal now is to make sure that these huge sacrifices that I made and now frankly regret, well, that something good will come from all of this. It's certainly not the ending I wanted or expected, but now I've got to make something good out of it, right? I can't do anything about my mom's life. That door is closed. So instead, I have to look for the open door. And for me right now, that means changing as many lives as I have the ability to change to honor my mom. I know that the reason I struggle much less than other women with ADHD is almost entirely because of my mom. She fought for me, and she allowed me to be exactly who I am. She never shamed me. Ever look if my daughter had walked out of the house with all the weird clothes that I made, the oversized floppy hats and the ridiculous hairstyles, I would have most certainly said something. But my mom never did. My mom might not always have been an optimist about herself, but she was always an optimist about me. I had an unfair advantage—a mother who loved me unconditionally and thought I could do anything—and you know. Because she thought it, it didn't much matter what others thought. I trusted her. And so I thought it too. Let's go change some lives. Please pre-order the book at ADHDForSmartWomen.com forward slash book. I also want to say something quick about COVID. Please take it seriously. It's not a joke. As I mentioned, if you have high blood pressure, there is up to a 25 times higher likelihood of stroke if you contract COVID. You know, because everyone in my family already had COVID, not to mention all the misinformation about COVID, we thought, oh, my mom will be fine. It's not that big of a deal. So we didn't take it as seriously as we should have. I don't want this to happen to another family, and I certainly never thought it would happen to ours. Be kind, follow the science, and leave politics out of this. And if you're a nurse, thank you so much for the work that you do. In closing. I'd like to share with you the eulogy that I wrote for my mom. Birds, but not the drab brown kind. They need to be brightly colored and exquisitely formed with porcelain-like beaks and perfect round little bodies. Hummingbirds, butterflies, frogs, and the color yellow. Our beautiful mama, I see you here, there, and everywhere. Memories. Picking Cherries in Brentwood. Carol Burnett on warm Saturday evenings. Nancy Drew and the Hardy Boys, too. Lawrence Welk. Lots of chamber music, especially string instruments. The German School of the Mid-Peninsula. Yummy, yummy, says my tummy, when we go to McDonaldland. Land, bum-beinzje, bum-bum. Doris Day. Elkie Summer. The Pink Panther, Copenhagen's on Burlingame Avenue, Yellowstone, well, that might be a memory we all should forget. Life's lesson, you cannot cook gourmet meals in an RV. My mother was born in war-torn Germany in 1941. By the time she was five, she had endured more hardship and trauma than any of us have experienced in our entire life. By comparison, my siblings and I have lived a charmed life full of privilege and opportunity. Despite all this, my mom was resilient. There was literally nothing that she couldn't do if she was interested in doing it. And she wouldn't just learn things, she'd immerse herself in them. She was mind-blowingly inventive and had a brilliant aesthetic. And she was busy, always creating something. Above all, my mom valued excellence. She loved to sew. This meant that what she sewed would be finished to such a standard that you could literally wear it inside out and no one would be the wiser. My mom loved to cook. And she taught herself how by cooking her way through the gourmet French cooking compendiums, taking classes with chefs in their working kitchens in the evening because she had four kids to tend to during the day. She religiously watched Julia Child and Jacques Pepin on PBS, She loved to flambe, so we joked often about the time she caught the curtains on fire. Did that really happen, or was that family lore? Another thing I meant to ask her. My mom loved to knit, but her knitting looked nothing like my knitting. It was so intricate that it rivaled the handiwork you'd find in a Connemara sweater from Ireland. The other day, I pulled pages of paper that were stuffed into the sleeves of the last sweater she had been working on she tracked the intricate patterns that she knit by writing down numbers for every row she finished. There was so much writing, so many numbers, over so many pages that it made me dizzy. I have no idea how she did any of this. My mom loved music. She loved to sing. Opera. Doris Day. Brenda Lee. Andy Williams. Ed Ames. Johnny Mathis. Chamber music. When we were older, she started to play the violin. She would sneak off to the San Francisco Symphony to watch their rehearsals while we were in school. When she picked us up in her burgundy and wood-paneled Oldsmobile station wagon, she'd regale us with stories of how she'd just met Itzhak Perlman, chatted with Mr. Rostoprovich, or charmed Yasha Heifetz. She was silly. When we were kids, she'd pull a pair of pantyhose over her head and chase us around the house pretending to eat goldfish. She did that with her grandchildren, too. My mom loved her grandchildren. Hayden, Kaylee, Lena, Attea, Hannah, and Marcus. And she adored her brothers. We'd hear stories of how she danced with Manfred, cooked with Wolfgang, and the easy joy of her relationship with Philly. She was fiercely protective and oh-so-loyal to her family. My mom was the heartbeat of every party. No one commanded a room like she did. Beautiful, bright, and sparkly. Everyone noticed her, whether it was the butcher at Petrini's or my boyfriend's. We were so proud that she was our mother. Preternaturally elegant and eternally youthful, I expected her to live forever. A lot of people get more set in their ways as they age. My mother was the opposite. She had boatloads of empathy and curiosity and a willingness to consider that maybe how she viewed the world wasn't the only way to view the world. And maybe, just maybe, we are all a product of our individual experiences. I think what I loved most about my mother in her later years was just how open-minded she became. Whereas she was a very strict mother, as a grandmother, nothing was a big deal. She said yes to high school parties, yes to man buns on Marcus, and my personal favorite, yes to tattoos. She welcomed individuality, knew what was important, and when it came to her grandchildren, she was completely nonjudgmental. She saw no reason to sweat the small stuff. Nowhere, however, was my mom happier than when she was traveling with her best friend, my dad. And she did a lot of that. 40 countries at Marcus's last counting. Who gets to do that? Turns out less than 5% of the world's population. My dad was truly the love of her life. Some of my best memories were hearing my kids talk about conversations they'd had with their Oma where she told them all the reasons she had fallen in love with their grandfather. After a party not too long ago, Atea announced that her favorite part of the whole evening was when my dad, her grandfather, kept asking her to, well, look at Oma, and followed that up with, doesn't she look great tonight? Hers was a life well lived. Our beautiful mama, we cannot miss you and at the same time feel your presence. We can't worry about the past or wonder about the future. So instead, we'll be right here in the present, focused on all the gratitude we can muster. It was the honor of our lifetime to have been your husband, children, grandchildren, and friend. Birds, but not the drab brown kind. They need to be brightly colored and exquisitely formed with porcelain-like beaks and perfectly round little bodies, hummingbirds, butterflies, frogs, and the color yellow. My beautiful mama, you are here, there, and everywhere.